Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Berean Bible Church podcast. This message is the seventh message of our Seven Seas of History series. It's called Consummation. Now, here's Steve Wilson, our Bainbridge campus pastor, with today's teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for braving the snow this morning and losing an hour of sleep. To get here, you know, smart people go to bed an hour early on the day before daylight savings time. And uh, I'm just going to say, I am not a smart person. And I'm kind of missing that hour here this morning. But uh, it's so it had been a while since I had been able to be here on a Sunday morning here in green. Uh, but now I've been able to be here twice in the last seven weeks. So that's exciting. I'm, yeah. Very happy to be here with you uh, this morning. And uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm our Bainbridge campus pastor here at Berean. I've been serving in that role now for a little over a year, um, like 14 months and two weeks, something like that, officially. So uh, as we're getting started here this morning, I just want to give a shout out to our Bainbridge campus joining us by simulcast here this morning. Good morning, Bainbridge. And uh, Cincy and our online folks who are watching here today, I haven't forgotten about you guys. Uh, thank you for joining us by simulcast here this morning. And uh, speaking of Cincy, I don't know if you guys know this, but yesterday was Pastor Nathan's birthday. Yeah. So I, I don't know how old he is. I'm not sure which birthday that was, but I do know, however old he is, his beard is exactly the same age. And I can prove it. I found one of his baby pictures recently. <laughs> so happy birthday, Nathan, and, and happy birthday to your beard as well. Well, for the last, uh, last six weeks now, seven weeks here today, we've been in a series that we're calling The Seven Seas of History. And it's basically a 30,000-foot view of the story that the Bible is Telling. It's a look at human history and the seven seas that kind of define uh, the story that it's telling there. There are two ways that you can look at history. You can see history as essentially a random set of interactions between conscious beings with no plan, no ultimate destination, and ultimately no purpose. Or you can see history as something more than that. You can see history as a story. A story that has an author that begins with purpose and is ultimately moving towards a particular de destination. Now, the, the story that the Bible is telling holds that second view, right? That, that, um, it's the story of us, and it's, it's about the God who made us. And so far, we've looked at six parts of this story. We've looked at six C's so far. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, and the cross. And all six of those seas that we've looked at so far, we're looking back on. They're literally history. They're, they're part of our history. They're the things that have led to this point. The sea that we're going to look at this morning isn't a sea that we're looking back on. It's actually a sea that we're looking forward to. It hasn't happened yet. But it's ultimately the destination that every other one of these seas is leading towards. Our final C in this series is consummation. 
And, and consummation is a word that we don't use very often, so I want to start here by just defining it. Consummation is the point at which something is complete or finalized. It's, it's the end game. It's the wrap-up. It's the final destination. It's the point where everything that history has been building to is realized. If, so if history were a symphony, this last C, the consummation, would be kind of the crescendo. It's where everything kind of comes together. Now, um, I'm pretty confident that you guys already know what I'm going to be talking about today, because where does our story reach its consummation? What is the consummation for us? I think I heard it. Heaven, right? Heaven. Now, I took a public speaking class when I was in college, and one of the things that they teach you in those classes is a trick for kind of grabbing the audience's attention. If you really want to grab the audience's attention, you need a juicy lead-in statement. It's, it's kind of the bait on the hook for the audience, right? And I've had varying success with that over the years uh, as I've done public speaking, but I'm just going to be upfront with you guys. I have got a juicy lead-in statement for you today. Are you ready for it? All right, here it is. Nobody in this room is going to heaven. Nobody in this room is going to heaven. In fact, nobody watching online or by simulcast this morning is going to heaven either. And you might be thinking at this moment, I'm not sure about the guy on stage either, right? And you're right, I'm not going to heaven either. And I'm serious, I'm not trying to be tricky with my words. Nobody here is going to heaven. Our story doesn't end. It doesn't reach its consummation with us escaping earth and going to heaven. The consummation of our story ends with heaven coming to earth and the earth being renewed and restored to the place and the purpose that God had for it in the beginning. That's our consummation. That moment happens when heaven meets earth and the two are unified in the way that God always intended, the way that he intended from the very beginning. So that's the moment that we're going to look at here this morning. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, I want to invite you to pull that out and open it up to Revelation 21 this morning. Revelation 21. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along here this morning, there should be a chair Bible uh, nearby. Go ahead and grab one of those, and you'll find Revelation 21 on those, in those Bibles there on page 1002 this morning, 1002. Uh, while you're turning there, let me, let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Revelation. Revelation is, is one of those books that uh, just about everybody enjoys reading it. And just about everybody is really confused by the time they're done with it because it's, it's got a little bit of everything. It's got dragons, it's got fire and plagues and angels fighting against demons. Um, it's got all kinds of stuff. And it's, and it's filled with poetry and symbolism that's deeply connected to the Old Testament prophets in particular. And the whole thing is the work of this man named John. John was one of Jesus' best friends, during his ministry here on earth. And at this point, John is an old man when he writes the book of, of Revelation. He's an old man. He's been doing ministry for decades around the Mediterranean. And not everybody was a big fan of that. So actually, at this point in John's life, he's in exile on an island called Patmos. 
Um, he's, he's essentially in prison there, but instead of putting him in a jail cell, they put him on this island by himself, and he's, he's exiled there. And it's there on that island as an old man that Jesus gives John this vision of what he's going to do with history, where he's leading everything, and ultimately what his work is going to accomplish. And we're going to dive in right, on, right at the end of this vision that Jesus gives to John, and we're going to look at where it all comes together here this morning. You ready to do that? All right, let's, let's read about this moment here together. Revelation 21, we'll start in verse 1 here. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Now, there's kind of two takes on what John means here when he says that the old heaven and the old earth have disappeared. One, one take is that John means that the old heaven and the old earth have been completely destroyed, that God destroys the whole thing with fire. He, he kind of wipes the slate clean, and he starts over. So it's kind of like a flood 2.0 um, that happens there. The other view on this is that it's not the, the heavens and the earth themselves that get destroyed. It's the old system that's broken and fueled by sin that gets destroyed. God, God deals with sin, and then he kind of purges the system and, and renews and restores the heavens and the earth. Now, I, I tend to favor the second view there. That's kind of where I land. Uh, personally, that it's not the heavens and earth are being destroyed. They're being renewed and refreshed. Um, but that's something that I encourage you to kind of study out for yourself. If you want to dive into that a little bit more, Second Peter 3 is a big passage that talks about this, and Romans 8 um, are two good passages to consider there to dive into. But either way, no matter where you land on that, um, what John means there, the picture that he's painting for us here is of an earth that is completely free from the corrosive effects of evil. And it's, it's as fresh and full of promise as a newborn baby. That's, that's what John is seeing here. And then notice what happens here in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, does anybody know why Jerusalem was called the holy city? What was in Jerusalem? Yeah, the temple was in Jerusalem. It's called the holy city because the temple was in Jerusalem. And the temple was God's house. That's where God lived with the nation of Israel. So what John's seeing here is this new city that's coming down from God, and that's where God is going to live with his people. And he uses this image of a bride in her wedding gown, kind of like coming down the aisle towards her husband. And, and I love this image that John uses here. And one of the reasons why I love it is, is it, it shows that this is a purposeful act of God. This is the way that it was always meant to be. So a wedding is a union where two separate things become one unified thing. A, a man leaves his family and a, and a woman leaves her family and they join together to create one new thing. They start their own family. But beyond that, a wedding is a fulfillment of a promise. It's not an accidental union 
It's not an incidental union. It's an intentional union. So by using this image here, John is showing us that this is the way that it was always meant to be. Uh, it's not supposed to be heaven and earth kind of coexisting as two separate things where God lives in his space, humans live in their space. It's heaven and earth existing together as a unity where God and humans live together. So that's the consummation of history. That's where all of history is leading to. This moment where heaven meets earth and the two kind of form one new thing. That's the way it was always designed to be. That's, that's the outcome that God has always been moving this to from day one. Okay, so that's kind of the picture that John paints for us there. And what I want to talk about here this morning is kind of twofold. What is that going to mean for us then? If this is the consummation of history, if this is where everything is going, what is that going to mean then? And what does it mean for us now? What's, what does it do for us to know what the consummation of history is ultimately going to be now in the meantime? So first, let's talk about what it's going to mean then when it actually happens. And John kind of lays that out for us here in the verses that follow. So pick up in verse 3 here. John says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more, what? Death or what else? Sorrow. What else? Crying. And what else? Pain. All of these things are gone. How long? Forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Pretty awesome picture, isn't it? Have you ever wondered what heaven is going to be like? Anybody wondered that before? John's kind of giving us a, a glimpse of what it's going to be like here. And what I want to do here is, is just kind of explore some of the themes that John weaves through this description that he's just given to us here. Here's the first one. When heaven meets earth, we're going to meet our maker. We're going to meet our maker. Now, that's a phrase that has some connotations, isn't it? When I was a, when I was a teenager, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, uh, I did something that got me in trouble. My mom caught me red-handed, and my dad wasn't home. So do you know what my mom said to me? You got it. Some of you have heard that phrase too. Wait till your father gets home, right? That phrase injected me with sheer terror. Some of you have met my dad, and you know my dad is, my dad is not an imposing person. He is five feet, two inches tall, right? But appearances can be deceiving because in reality, my dad is a six foot six, 250 pound linebacker trapped in a five foot, two inch body. So when my mom said that, I decided that I was going to pursue the only reasonable sounding course of action, 
When I heard our garage door open that signaled that my dad was home from work, I ran out the back door, I went up into the woods behind our house, and I hid. Yeah. I stayed out there for hours, okay? It started to rain, and I stayed out there. I got soaked, and I stayed out there. It was cold, and I stayed out there because I did not want to face my dad. Well, my, my mom told my dad what was going on, and eventually my dad came out on the porch, and he just called my name up into the, up into the woods there. And I realized it was going to go a lot better for me if I just went and faced the music rather than making my dad come up and find me. Like, that was not going to go well. So I had decided I would go down and probably meet my maker, right? So I get down in the house, and my dad puts his hand on my shoulder, but he didn't do it with anger and judgment. He did it with love and compassion. And when that was over, I knew two things. My, my dad reassured me that there was nothing that I could do that would ever change how he felt about me. And we went on to have one of the most open and honest conversations we'd had up to that point. And I'm going to remember that moment for the rest of my life, I think. There, there were two things that I knew when I walked away from that. Number one, I knew that I had messed up and that I deserved the consequences for my actions. But number two, I knew who I was. I knew I was my father's son. And I knew that his love for me was stronger than my sin. It was stronger than my fear. It was stronger than my weakness. And it was stronger than my pain. And in that moment, I see a hint of what it's going to be like here in Revelation 21. When heaven meets earth, followers of Jesus are going to meet their maker. And it won't be his judgment that we experience in that moment. We're going to experience his love in a way that we've never experienced before. His direct presence with us face to face is going to reveal his love in all of its power. And it's stronger than your weakness. It's stronger than your fear. It's stronger than your pain. It's not only stronger than them, it's strong enough to undo them, to take all of it up and turn it in, take, take all of it up into itself and then turn it into something beautiful. That's the power of God's love. So when we meet our maker in this moment, it's not going to be his judgment that we experience. It's going to be an end to every pain and problem that we've ever experienced. Here's another theme that, that John's kind of weaving in here. When heaven meets earth, all that's broken will be mended. Now, when I became a dad, there was a, a new role that was kind of attached to my job description. It was fixer. Because when there's a toy that's, that's broken or it's, it's not working or it's not performing up to expectations, who do you take it to? You take it to dad. Dad can fix it, right? And on the one hand, that's a blessing. On the other hand, that's a curse. Because there's nothing more satisfying as a dad than when your kid brings you a toy that's broken and they're looking at you like, can you, can you fix this for me? And you, you fix it, right? 
You, you take what was broken, you restore it to working order, and then they're looking at you like, I knew you were the new and improved Superman. Just knew it. But on the other hand, there is nothing more depressing than when your kid brings you a toy and you can't fix it. And they're looking at you like, I believed in you. Why did you disappoint me? Sometimes dad has to fix the toy because dad's the one that broke it, right? But more often than not, dad's fixing something that, that he didn't break. And that's the scenario here in Revelation 21. God didn't break our world. We did. And we can't fix it. But God can. And someday he will. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow or pain. All of those things are going to be gone forever. But actually, God's going to take it one step farther than that. Because here's the thing. When I fix one of my kids' toys, it still has the marks of brokenness, typically. You can still see the, the cracks where I glued it back together. Or if, like, it's an action figure where the arm popped out of the socket or something and I managed to get it back in, it's, it's probably going to be loose in there. It's still going to pop out periodically now. Like, it still has the, the marks of brokenness on it, even after I fix it. But when God fixes our world, it's not going to be like that. It won't be a world that's been weakened by its brokenness. It's not going to be a refurbished world. Look at what God says he's going to do in verse 5. The one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything, what? New. Making it new. So when heaven meets earth, all that's broken will be mended. And it's not just going to be fixed. It's going to be restored to the plan and the purpose that God had for it from the beginning. It's going to be exactly the way that he intended it to be. So one last theme to, to bring out here. When heaven meets earth, life will overflow. Now I think... We've seen this week, we're in kind of that weird stage of upstate New York weather where it can't quite make up its mind whether it wants to be winter or spring. Like, we had some glorious days this week. There, a couple days it smelled like spring. Did you smell that? And then we get eight inches of snow dumped on us yesterday. So, uh, but in a, in a few weeks, we're going to see one of the fullest expressions of life on this earth, when, when it's finally and fully spring, everything's going to turn green. There's going to be all kinds of little baby animals running around, and, and everything's going to get that kind of fresh and new smell. But here's the thing. Even the most perfect spring on this planet is just a pale reflection of what it's going to be like in this moment, of what the, the life, the overflowing life is going to be like when heaven meets earth there. See, we live in a world right now that inevitably succumbs to death and decay. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. He says, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day that God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including 
the new bodies that he has promised us. So we live in this world that is in bondage to death and decay. It will ultimately succumb to death and decay. And our bodies do the same thing, right? I came across this meme here on the internet this week that I could very much relate to. My body's not what it used to be. My, my hair is not the same color that it used to be. I had to pluck my first ear hair a couple of months ago. Like, it's the beginning of the end for me. But when heaven meets earth, death and decay won't be the dominant forces anymore. In fact, they will no longer be, period. Life is going to be the dominant force, and that life will course through us and the world around us. And it's going to be freely available to all of God's children. God says, it is finished. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. So, the picture that John's painting for us here in Revelation 21, this this is the moment when the creation that God spoke into existence in Genesis 1 reaches its ultimate destination. It becomes what God ultimately intended for it to be. And and as a unique part of that creation, this is where we as human beings become who we were always intended to be. So it will be the children of God living with God face to face in a world that brims with his life. That's what it's going to mean then. Right? That's ultimately what that's going to mean for us then. But the question that I want to kind of answer now, ask and answer right now, is what does that matter now? Like, what do we do with that in the meantime? Because it's not here yet. It's still future. We're still looking forward to it. What does it mean for us now? And I want to give you two takeaways here this morning. Here's the first one. Because heaven is going to meet earth, Obedience is worth it. Because it's a reality that heaven is coming to earth, obedience is worth it. You know what makes obedience hard? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's worth it, right? You've got to give something up very often, or, or you've got to set aside something that you want. You, you can't take something that you want, or maybe you have to do something that you don't want to do. It's, it's really rare when you're faced with the option of doing something obedient or doing something sinful that, that doing the obedient thing is the more attractive thing, right? That is a really rare thing because sin is a master of looking enticing. It, it always feels like this is the path to ultimate happiness and satisfaction. Right? That, is, that is the appeal of sin, but that's why we have this picture of what's coming. That's why we have this, this picture. Because heaven will one day meet earth, it means that the path to the best existence is this way. It's through obedience, not through disobedience. Compromise and disobedience promise short-term gain, but ultimately that's not the best path for the best existence. See, no matter what temptation you're facing right now, it can't hold a candle to the future that God is promising his children. 
You can trust that God will meet every desire with the perfect outcome. The ending that's promised to us means that nobody who chooses obedience now is going to be disappointed in that moment. The only people who are going to be disappointed in that moment are the people who've chosen disobedience. That frees us when we know that, that this is what's coming for us, that this is what God has in store for us. That frees us to live a life of sacrificial obedience now. So that's the first takeaway that I want to give you there. Obedience is worth it. I want to give you a second takeaway here, and we're going to kind of take the long way around to get to this. I, I got to lay some groundwork here, but I promise I'm going to bring it home here. So um, here's, here's kind of the second takeaway. Revelation 21 and 22 give us the fullest picture of what it's going to look like when heaven meets earth. Okay, this, this is the fullest expression of what that's going to be. But this is not just a future reality. Heaven connecting with earth is actually something that God has been doing through human beings all throughout our history. I want to show you what I mean. It goes, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of our existence. This is Genesis chapter 2 here that I'm going to show you here. Then the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this place that God makes here, the Garden of Eden, this is the very first place where heaven touches earth. It's, it's where heaven and earth intersect for the first time, and God steps into his creation. This is where uh, life flourished. Adam and Eve cultivated that life, and God would walk with them face to face in the cool of the, of the day. Now, the problem is that this kind of vision of what creation was supposed to be like gets spoiled when humans decide that we're going to follow the serpent rather than follow God. We're going, to, we're going to choose to do what the serpent offers us instead of choosing to obey God. And from that day until this one, earth has been kind of cut off from the life of heaven. But as you go through the Bible... God begins to kind of call people back to himself. And every time he does that, within their communities, you start to see these little echoes of Eden that start to take place. And I'll show you, I'll show you some examples of that. Here's, uh, the first one is when, when God calls the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He delivers them from slavery. He calls them to be his chosen people. And then he tells them to make this kind of weird tent that he's going to live in. Right? He's going to live in this tabernacle, he calls it, with the nation of Israel. And he gives them some really specific instructions, some really detailed and specific instructions for how to build this tent. And I want to show you some of the details in there. So this is from Exodus 37 here. This, these are the instructions for the lampstand that was in the, the center room of the tabernacle there. It says the lampstand had six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches had three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. The center stem of the lampstand was crafted from four lamp, with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There was an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extended from the center stem, all made of one piece. 
The almond buds and branches were all of one piece with the center stem, and they were hammered from pure gold. So the, the lampstand there in that room is shaped to look like a tree. What does that remind you of? It's an echo of the tree of life in Eden at the very center of the tabernacle. It's a connection back to the Garden of Eden there. And there's a guy who comes along about 500 years later after the, they build the, the tabernacle for the first time, a guy named David. And he recognized the connection between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. And he wants to build God a permanent house, move him out of this tent into a permanent house in Jerusalem. And so he comes up with these plans for the temple and he gives them to his son Solomon and he tells his son Solomon, I want you to build the temple and I want you to incorporate these elements that kind of look back at the Garden of Eden. So this is from 1 Kings chapter 6. Here's some of the details that David asked Solomon to incorporate. Cedar paneling completely covered the stone walls throughout the temple. And the paneling was decorated with carvings of gourds and open flowers. He decorated all the walls of the inner sanctuary in the main room with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made double doors of wild olive wood with five-sided doorposts. These double doors were decorated with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. The doors, including the decorations of cherubim and palm trees, were overlaid with gold. So even these elements in the temple here are all designed to connect back to the Garden of Eden. Like they're, they're showing its connection to that moment when heaven and earth intersected there. And ultimately, this connection between the temple and Eden is brought to its fullest expression in Revelation 21 and 22. There's a connection between the New Jerusalem and one of the rooms that was in the tabernacle and the temple, the center room in the tabernacle and the temple was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. That's where God lived. It was kind of like his throne room. And listen to the dimensions of the, the most holy place. Actually, I'll show it to you here. These are the dimensions of the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. This inner sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. So what shape is it? It's a cube. It's a perfect cube. Same length, width, and height. 30 feet on every side. Okay? Now, look at the dimensions here of the New Jerusalem. This is Revelation 21, 15, and 16. You can, you can look at it there in your Bible. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact... Its length, width, and height were each 1,400 miles. So the New Jerusalem is also a perfect cube. He's connecting that back to the most holy place. It's 1,400 miles on every single side. And apparently it's going to be somewhere in Canada, according to that picture. I don't know why, but, but it's roughly 250,000 times bigger than the original. And that's intentional. Here's, here's John's point with this whole thing and the connection that he's making here with the New Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies. When the New Jerusalem comes down, when heaven meets earth, the whole earth is going to be God's temple. 
the whole thing is going to be God's temple. That's where God, where heaven and earth are going to intersect, and God will step into his creation. So it was Eden, it was the tabernacle, it was the temple, and someday it's going to be the entire earth. And here's my point. Okay, here's, here's what I want to focus on here. Because the, the old temple is gone, and the new Jerusalem isn't here yet. So the, the whole earth isn't yet God's temple. But there is still a place where heaven and earth intersect and God steps into his creation. Do you know what it is? It's you. You are that place now. You're the point where heaven and earth intersect and God steps into his creation. Check this out. This is Ephesians 2. Paul says, you are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a what? Holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So we don't live in the reality of Revelation 21 and 22 yet. We're not living yet in that moment where heaven meets earth. But here's the vision of this passage, the picture that, that John's painting for us here. There's a sense in which the church, not the building, the people, are the intersection of heaven and earth right now. We are where heaven meets earth. We're where God steps into his creation. And that's the vision that I want to call us to this morning, Berean. That's what I would love for us to be as a community. This is the vision that God has for his people, that we would be the kind of community that offers a glimpse of heaven on earth. Like when we live fearlessly obedient lives that seek God's kingdom first, we seek his glory over our own glory. When we live in his power and we pursue his purposes, when we're radically generous with the resources that God has given to us, do you know what happens? People come into this community and they meet their maker. They have a life-changing encounter with the God who made them and wants a relationship with them. Like some of you, that's, that's your experience. You stepped into this community and you met a God who changed your life. You met your maker. And what's broken gets mended. Marriages get restored. Families get strengthened. They get healed. And, and people, broken people, find forgiveness and, and transformation. And then life overflows. It flows from God through us into our families and into our schools and into our workplaces and into our communities. That's the vision that I want to call us to this morning. Because humans have always had a unique connection to heaven and to earth. When God made Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. So humans have a deep connection to the earth. But he also made him in the image of God. So humans have a deep connection to heaven as well. We're designed to connect heaven and earth. And that gives us a unique capacity now 
as followers of Jesus to offer to the world around us a picture of what the life of heaven is like. And ultimately, when heaven arrives, we'll be home because that's what we were made for. Would you bow with me this morning? As we close here today, I want you to know there's, there's kind of a crucial part to this discussion, this whole discussion. What we've looked at today here is, is a picture of the future that awaits the children of God. And the last part of that is really important. This is, this is the future that awaits the children of God. And the tension that's, that's in our story and the story that the Bible is telling is that humans have rejected that role. We rejected God and the role that he has for us, and, and we chose our own path. And there's a warning that Jesus gives in this passage, this, this vision that he gives to John in Revelation. Jesus tells John, blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. So this warning's pretty simple. Those who have rejected God will be rejected by God when heaven meets earth. But with that warning, Jesus also makes an appeal, and John makes an appeal. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. And that invitation to come to God through Jesus is, is open, and it's open today. So if you're here today and you would say, I don't have a relationship with God. I've, I've lived my life independent from him. I haven't chosen to live my life in obedience to him. Then today I want to invite you to turn and accept this invitation this invitation that he's giving to you. Lay your life at the feet of Jesus today and tell him that it's his from now on. You're done walking your own path. From now on, you're going to follow him. And that's going to mean sacrifice now. It's going to mean laying aside your will and your desires. But in the end, it means life beyond anything that you can imagine. And if you'd like to do that today, then I want to invite you right now, just in your seat right where you're sitting there, to lay your life at the feet of Jesus and tell him that from now on, your life is his. Would you do that this morning? Father, as we wrap up this series here this morning and just kind of look at the scope of this, this whole story from beginning to end, your story, the story that you have been telling through our history, God, the first thing that we want to do is just praise you for who you are. 
God, this is, is an incredible story. And the, the span of history is, is overwhelming. What a great God you are to be the author of all of this. Our story is great not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And the future that awaits us when we see you face to face and experience the life that, that you offer and the love that you have for us in all of its fullness, God, that is a future that we are eagerly awaiting. We can't wait to experience that. In the meantime, God, we just want to ask that, that you would help us to use that knowledge of that certain future that you have for us to fuel our obedience now and help us to be the kind of community that gives a taste of what that future will be like. And God, ultimately, would you use that to draw people in, draw people to your son and the life that you offer through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.